Okay, everybody get concentrated. <laughs> so before um, we start talking about concentration, just you know, we went through mindfulness like really fast. You know, we you know when we teach mindfulness here, it's five weeks. Um, when I talked about the Satipatthana Sutta, I had a course we spent eight weeks talking about the Satipatthana Sutta. So this is just you know kind of a survey, really broad brush. So, but uh, before we leave this, is there a question that somebody would really like to ask or is curious about or like some clarification before we move on? Um, so in the Satipatthana Sutta, there's these, the four foundations. Um, and when I read uh, Bhikkhu Nalio's book, he, he points to the fact that there could be more and that just the, the Satipatthana Sutta just didn't go through those ones? Do you have any input that you could give on that? Yes. So, for those of you who don't know, Bikramanalyo is uh, another scholar monk, and he wrote a book, really big, he turned his PhD dissertation into a book about uh, the Satipatthana Sutta. And if that weren't enough, um, he wrote a second book. And the second book, he compares it to um, other Buddhist texts. And so he kind of says, oh, this is the same, this is different, and what does it mean? So um, I think that's one thing that's clear from um, Bhikkhu Analio's work is something that I said earlier, that this is a composed text as opposed to something that the Buddha maybe perhaps just said at one time. And that the different traditions preserved it differently. And so that if we look at other versions of the Satipatthana Sutta, they don't have it all nice and tidy this way that we have it here in the version that here, uh, that our tradition, the Theravada tradition, um, holds. So your question is, you thought that perhaps there were more? Let's, you mean like more foundations or more elements within the? I don't remember. You know, I don't remember exactly that there were more foundations, but they there were some elements in the other versions that aren't in this version. And what Bikramanalio has done, he's a, he's a scholar as well as a practitioner as well as a meditation teacher. He taught at our meditation center. I think uh, two years ago he was in Spirit Rock last week, or in April, and I think he'll be back next year. What he has done, which I think is very interesting, is he um, has looked at, well, what's common to these different versions? What do they all agree on? And let's teach those. Let's focus on those. So he has, my understanding, as a practitioner, he emphasizes what's common as opposed to what's unique. And I have to say that I honestly don't know off the top of my head what's unique. I have a different version of this handout that points out what's common. I didn't bring that today, but um, maybe it's just useful to know that, you know, not only do we have the question, how authoritative do we hold the text to be, but we get to have the question, which text, which version, right? We without going into a whole history of Buddhist studies and Buddhism, there is more than one version of this. The Theravada tradition holds this one as important, but there are other versions. And it's just in the last maybe 10, 20 years, 
that there are scholars that know all these classical languages well enough that can uh, compare the different versions and translate them into English or another European language in which more people can understand them. So it's kind of a new cutting edge of where Buddhist studies is today. That's kind of a long answer to your question. Okay, so concentration. So, one way that um, we can understand concentration is in its relationship to mindfulness, what we just uh, were talking about. And if we understand mindfulness as a way of noticing our experience, and we just talked about there's so many different things happening and so many things we can different notice. But if we can think of mindfulness as like a telescope that enables us to see things that you can't see with the naked eye, then concentration is like the tripod to that telescope, keeps it steady so that we can see even better. Holds things, it's like a calmness. It's um, often called um, calm meditation, I've seen that. Probably where it is samatha. It's a tranquility meditation, I've seen. So it kind of offers a stability and steadfastness, a type of... Um, Maybe like focus, a type of focus. There we go. Right? All of us know how to focus. We all have this experience in our lives, whether it's because we have to solve a particular problem, we focus, or because we're in imminent danger or somebody we love is in danger, we can really focus and figure out clearly what needs to be done and just do it. Right? So we all have this capability. And so if mindfulness is about cultivating the capability to notice, and concentration practice is cultivating the capability to focus. Right? And they're you know, related, right? The, the more you notice things, the more you tend to get focused. And the more you're focused, the more you notice. But they are a little bit different, and we'll talk about that. Maybe one way to notice or to... Um, help understand what does it mean to focus, it's kind of like the opposite of rumination or preoccupation or, you know, where we kind of like going over and over and not able to let go of something that's um, occupying our mind. Our kind of focus or concentration practice is a way to kind of zero in on something in particular. Um, Donald Lopez, who is a scholar, uh, I liked an analogy that he used. He says that um, the insight that we have from mindfulness practice is like the sharp axe that cuts out the defilements, those things that cause suffering. So that's mindfulness helps us. Mindfulness leads to insights, which helps us cut out those things that cause suffering. And concentration is the arm that wields the axe, 
you know, you kind of like need some strength or something to have an axe to go through. It's a little bit of a violent one, but I like how this idea of um, just like the tripod and the telescope, there's an arm wielding an axe. So these two things work together. So for mindfulness, we looked at the Satipatthana Sutta. That's the primary text that talks about uh, mindfulness practice. Concentration practice is all over the suttas. It's sprinkled in here, it's sprinkled in there, it's all over. And it's, um, as opposed to one single text that really describes it, it's used in the context of other things. For example... So concentration practice is described in texts that talk about the Buddha's life. Um, he practiced concentration is, um, before his awakening. As part of his awakening experience, he did concentration practices, and that was um, described. Also before his death, he um, was doing concentration practices and was very concentrated, and it describes that um, before he died. And that enabled him to have a very peaceful, easy pleasant, dare I say, death. He was doing um, concentration practices. As well as concentration is uh, an important part of, if we use this expression, paths of practice, like um, part of the Buddhist um, soteriology, the way that we find freedom, is is a path kind of over the beginning, a middle, and an end, just the way kind of this tradition holds it. And concentration has its place in that path of practice. To, from our current life to freedom, concentration is one of those steps on the way, in the way that it's described in the Buddhist discourses. For example, for those of you who have heard these expressions, if you haven't, that's okay too. I'm not going to... Ex- um, go into a detail about them, but there's this idea of the gradual training that's described in a couple of discourses. Concentration is a key role there. There's the Eightfold Path. Many of you may be um, familiar with that. Uh, Concentration is in there, as well as mindfulness is in there as well. And I should say mindfulness is also in the gradual training. They both have a role in um, in the path to freedom, awakening. And this kind of... um, what often is called the wings to awakening, the qualities to be developed as a way to um, become awakened. Concentration is there, as well as mindfulness. And then maybe I'll say, um, specifically in the Eightfold Path, that may be, for those of you who are familiar with kind of Buddhist teachings, the Eightfold Path may be what you're most familiar with. If you're not familiar with it, that's Okay. Eightfold path, like the name suggests, path has eight elements. <laughs> um, they're not necessarily gone one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. It's often um, a spoke of a wheel, a wheel that has eight spokes. If you're familiar with the Insight Retreat Center that is associated with our Insight Meditation Center here, we have as a logo a wheel that has eight spokes, and that stands for the eight elements of the Eightfold Path. One of those spokes is concentration. And concentration is defined a particular way in that um, for what's called right 
concentration or wise concentration. Right, not because it's the opposite of wrong, but right because, I like this analogy a lot that Gil uses, and it's been very helpful for me. Right in the sense that if you want to drink a liquid, and let's say you need the right, quote-unquote, tool, you will take a straw, not a fork, right? So right is the tool that's going to do the job. It's hard to drink with a fork. It's much easier to do with a straw. So that's kind of what's meant by right concentration. So right concentration in the context of the Eightfold Path is defined as the four jhanas. Jhana is a Pali word that often we sometimes is translated and sometimes isn't. And what it is is a meditative absorption. Before I go into the details of what that is, um, I'll talk about... First, let's talk about, um, on this handout, the top of the page, preparation for concentration. So both... um, most of the discourses, not all of them, many of the discourses of the Buddhist time, when they talk about concentration, they also talk about the conditions that need to be in place in order to become concentrated. So there isn't just, like I jokingly said when I sat down, okay, get concentrated. It doesn't work like that. right? If it would, then we would all be concentrated and be experiencing the pleasures of that or the benefits of that. Instead, I mean, the Buddha clearly recognized that there's other elements that need to be in place, and I listed them here. Having virtue. That could be like doing virtuous behavior. And um, I like the way that Gil described this. He kind of used an extreme example, which helped me to understand. If you just robbed a bank, it will be very difficult for you to sit here and be calm. Right? If you've done something that you know is not right or that people are going to be retribution for or something like that, you can't be calm. You can't kind of relax. So virtuous behavior is often um, serves us to have a, a relaxed mind. It's, of course, the right thing to do to be virtuous and to treat other people with respect and care. But it also has the benefit of enabling our minds to settle down. Having restrained the senses. So the Buddha, of course, didn't have the internet, but it's something kind of like, have you, have you noticed this? That like if you're looking for something on Google, or for me, this is what happens, Google News, oh, this, and then I click on that, and then I click on this other thing, and then this other thing, and this other thing. There's this kind of like greediness that happens for information, and I get lost, and then before I know it, I'm reading about Kim Kardashian's dress or something, you know, weird. So, you know, but I started, right, you know, wanting to know, like, what's the weather going to be today? You know, so it's just that sense. If you know that something that you're going to do is going to lead to some mindlessness or to something that's going to be agitating reading a blog of a blog writer that has different political opinions of your own that that could be agitating 
So restraint of the senses of just noticing those things that don't support calmness. Don't do those things that don't support calmness. Don't be looking at the wind standing outside the window of the bakery if you're feeling like, you know, I really shouldn't be eating cookies. This is my thing. Or um, so then I try not to go down the cookie aisle at the grocery store, right? So that I don't get, you know... You know, there's only so much, you know, I'm just being wise about what I'm doing. So that's what they mean by kind of restraining the senses. But also, um, yeah, there's so many different ways that um, that can be interpreted and things that we can do just to support our life in terms of having some calmness and some ease in our life. Being mindful. This is the practice that we were just doing, as well as just noticing Going down the cookie aisle begets cookie eating. You know, just being mindful in our lives, just noticing what things do um, lead to things that support our lives and things that don't support our meditation practice, support our spiritual lives, support any part of our life. Just being mindful, noticing. And then... um, I kind of appreciate that the Buddha explicitly says, um, having assumed a meditation posture... I'm interpreting this to mean setting aside a time in which you're going to say, okay, I'm going to meditate. This doesn't mean that we're not also doing meditation in our daily life and other things, but also specifically sitting down in however way that makes sense to us. It doesn't have to be sitting. It can be whatever posture is helpful and comfortable for you. Just like choosing, making the intention, okay, now is the time for meditation. I'm going to do this. I'm going to assume a meditation posture, make space for it. And then in order for um, concentration to arise is having temporarily abandoned the five hindrances. I put the word in square back in brackets temporarily because when I first saw this, what? I have to get rid of covetousness, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness, remorse, doubt. I'm never going to get concentrated. If you have this feeling, right, that this is something that you have to completely eradicate, then um, then you may feel not uh, inspired. Instead, what this is pointing to, and that mindfulness is so closely linked to, if if we sit down with the intention to bring our mindfulness to the breath or to whatever our object is, we will notice all those things that are getting in the way. Either the desire to bolt from our chair or our cushion, the hatred that's boiling up for the weed whacker, uh, leaf blower thing that's outside. You know, we'll just start to notice, or the drowsiness, like, oh my God, I need to go to sleep. You know, all these things that prevent us from going to... from. Uh, maintaining mindfulness of the breath. I was happy to learn that the Buddhists recognize this is a universal experience. We all have it. And they're called the hindrances because they hinder your ability to be present in the present moment. They hinder your ability to see clearly. They hinder the ability to see the goodness in yourself and the goodness in others. Eventually these quiet down. With meditation practice, they do quiet down. If we just 
Repeatedly bring our mindfulness back to our object. The hindrances will just abate. And if they don't, we can bring our mindfulness to them. The experience of being drowsy. The experience of having aversion. So the hindrances are something that will arise and they eventually can dampen and soften. When they do, then we can, the the text say, enter upon and abide in the first jhana. Maybe before I talk about what the what jhanas are, what the experience is, I'll back up a little bit and say, well, we talk about how this is part of the um, the path, but. Okay, maybe concentration is part of the path, but do we need jhana meditation? Do we need this newfangled special thing that has this word here? Or can it just be a certain type of focus? And this is an interesting question that a lot of, you know, recently people have been talking about. Um, Richard Shankman wrote a book called The Experience of Samadhi, the first half of the book is about all the textual references to concentration. And the second half is he interviewed teachers. Jack Cornfield, Lee Brazenton, Pawak Sayadaw, um, Sharon Salzberg, Christina Feldman. Those, you may have heard of some of these names. You may not have as, as well. And he asks them, do we really need Joanna concentration for, to get, uh, for freedom, for liberation? Some said yes, some said no. Back in the 1970s, Jack Kornfield, you may know, he's the founder of Spirit Rock. He's brought Buddhism to the West, a very influential person in this kind of scene here. In the 1970s, he um, had this question too. He was one of the very first Westerners to do this practice. He practiced in Asia, primarily Burma and Thailand. What's the role of concentration? Because I go practice with this person, and he's saying, you must get concentrated. And then he practiced with this other person who's saying, like, you don't need concentration, you just need mindfulness. So he brought it upon himself to interview what was considered the world's greatest meditation masters in this, uh, in this tradition. At that time, they were all alive. He called it uh, living Buddhist masters. And he asked this question too, is jhana concentration required? Do you need this to get um, uh, a freedom, awakening, enlightenment? Some said yes, some said no. So I think, right, this is, we get to find this out for ourselves, what is our experience? I think what um, most of the teachers have said is that there are individuals in which concentration is, um, comes more readily for them. For whatever reason, their minds are such that it's a little bit easier for them to get focused and to get concentrated. There's probably just as many people, their minds are not that way, that don't really get concentrated, or, and they have a different way of, I don't know, their minds are a little bit different. So it's not as easy for them to get concentrated. They, in fact, may not ever get really concentrated, may not ever have jhana experience, despite practicing for decades. It's just not the way their minds work. So I think these different teachers have these different answers as a way to kind of, um, 
you know, honor and recognize that different people have different experiences and different minds work differently. Here's what they all agree on. Some concentration is needed. Whether it's jhana concentration, which we're about to talk about, they don't agree on some concentration, some ability to settle down, to get calm, to be able to have some ease, and to and we probably have this experience in our lives where sometimes we're, you know, more calm than other times. And so, part of concentration practice is to just cultivate that ability to get calm in the way that your mind can. Without this idea that it has to be different or that your mind must be another way, we kind of have to honor each of us the way our minds work. And also, you know, um, our life experience. If If our profession requires us to be really concentrated and figure things out, then maybe we have all these years of cultivating a certain type of way of being. If our profession is a kindergarten teacher where we need to keep track of all these kids and what's going on and what's happening, that's a different type of thing that we've been cultivating, which has just as much value, right, but is a little bit different. So, does anybody have any questions? So, Oh, actually, let's, let's do a guided meditation. Let's do that now. It's kind of a way, like, what is... How, how would we experience it or the, um, what is, like how would that meditation be different than uh, mindfulness? Should we stand up for just like 30 seconds again? Because sometimes that's easier, right? For... I know that you guys are doing a lot of sitting and you're patiently listening to me. Sometimes it's nice to kind of just move the body a little bit, get the blood moving. And then let's take a alert, upright posture. Again, just some key things. Hips higher than knees. You guys all look good. It just It's really helpful for, uh, to have like a little space in the back of your neck that helps your spine be nice and straight and have your limbs hang. Gently close the eyes. And again, let's start with a few long, slow, deep breaths. We'll bring the breath back to normal. And just scan your body and see if there's some obvious tension that you can let go of.
Maybe the face, behind the eyes, the jaw. Perhaps with each exhale, there's a gentle softening, bringing some ease, relaxation. Notice your shoulders. Is there some tension there? Maybe they can be dropped a little bit or just relaxed or softened. If you can't, that's okay too. See if you can bring some ease to the lack of ease. The belly, see if we can relax the belly. And just let it move with the breath without having to control it, having to hold it in, just letting it be. the tops of your legs near your hips. It's help supporting you sit. Is there a way that you can just bring a little bit more ease or softness there? Feet. Again, we can feel the pressure of the ground on our feet. And again, just notice if there's any obvious way in which you can relax. We don't have to make a big project out of it. Only what's readily available. And now, rest your awareness with the sensation of breathing. Whether it's the breath or the chest moving, or the movement of the air through your nose. And when your mind wanders, 
just very gently bring it back to the breath. See if you can take an interest in each breath, as if it were your first breath ever. wanders, just very gently bring your awareness back to breathing. See if you can give yourself over to breathing, the experience of breathing. Notice if you are tense or struggling in any way. And if you can, relax mindfully into the present moment experience. Even if it's a little bit unpleasant.
Let yourself become absorbed in the breathing process. See if you can enjoy the sensual quality of each breath. Like how does it feel from the inside? Maybe like a massage from the inside. very gently bring it back to the breath whether you feel it in the abdomen or the chest or the air moving through your nose whichever is easiest most predominant we don't have to strive just a relaxed kind of persistent effort, effort with ease. You can feel a certain appreciation, maybe a devotion or love for your breath. Keeps us alive. We don't have to make it happen. It's a wonderful thing, breathing.
When your mind wanders, just very gently bring it back to the breath. And then to end this sitting, bring your awareness to your feet on the ground, the pressure of the cushion or the chair on your body. And when you're ready, you can gently open your eyes. So in contrast to the mindfulness meditation in which we started with the hand and then we went to the breath and we went to sounds, right? And then I even invited you, go to whatever's most compelling sounds or breath. With concentration practice, we choose an object. In this case, I chose for you the breath, which is classically what is done. It's my own practice, what I do. And then whenever our mind went somewhere else, we brought it back to the breath. Whenever our mind went somewhere else, we brought it back to the breath. And we tried to kind of like really, really be with the breath. And I used different words, different language to kind of encourage just really being with the breath. Not the thought about the breath, but more the experience of breathing, just kind of being one with that. So in this way, this is kind of one of the key differences between mindfulness and concentration. So whereas mindfulness is very inclusive, whatever is happening, we can bring our attention to the dog barking, our breath, the pain in our knee. Concentration is focus. We choose one thing and we always come back to it. That's kind of like the the main difference of this. And so with um, concentration, you can also see there's a certain calming of uh, the mind that happens in order to stay focused and there's also an emphasis on kind of ease and relaxation in the body because there's a real connection as many of you know between mind and body and if we want the mind to calm down it's really supportive to also have um, the body have a certain amount of ease in there Before we go on and start talking about jhanas, does anybody have some questions about what I said about concentration or about that uh, recent meditation we did? So back here, I'm not sure where the microphone's, I guess Laurie has, oh, there's, it's um, here, just down here. There we go. I just had a question about what you just said about the distinction between mindfulness, meditation, and concentration. Wouldn't concentration still be the same thing of mindfulness of the breath? So you can do a mindfulness of the breath and you can still 
observe and acknowledge something like a sensation and then return your attention to the breath? Or is that, is that then not mindful meditation? Yeah. So first of all, I'll say, um, maybe I'll back up a little bit and say in the earliest discourses, there wasn't this clear distinction between mindfulness and concentration. It was more just like meditation. And so some people will say, okay, this distinction is completely artificial and it's a little bit... Yeah, it's artificial. But I, um, supporting this idea that there is a difference, I'll say this. Um, mindfulness meditation is more about being with the actual phenomena, the actual experience. So I changed the language I used in a subtle way. Uh, When I was doing mindfulness meditation, I was saying, um, be with the sensations of breathing. So that is the abdomen moving, chest moving. When I was guiding you guys in concentration, I said, be with the breath. So what's the difference? When you meditate, you start to kind of like see the difference between uh, an experience of the abdomen getting inflated versus this idea called the breath. Because what is the breath? Is that when you're inhaling? Is it when you're exhaling? Is it the air moving? Is it oxygen mixing with hemoglobin? Is it, you know, like what is it exactly? When we really try to define the breath, we realize breath, quote unquote, is really a collection of events. So mindfulness is really focusing on the events, and the events are changing like this, whereas concentration is we're kind of like on the breath. It's, that's a, the idea of breath is a little bit more stable and is a constant and is something that we can be with. But in order to get concentrated, you kind of have to be mindful that, oh, um, this other thing is hindering me from getting concentrated, so I, maybe I need to pay attention to that or something. So you need to kind of do mindfulness in order to get concentrated. And if you do mindfulness, you will get concentrated. If you keep on bringing your mind back to the phenomena that are going like this, it'll, a concentration will naturally happen. Is that at all? Was yeah, that helpful? Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Okay. Um, so when you're concentrating and you're concentrating on the breath and you have thoughts coming, you said come back to the breath. So you're not doing that kind of investigation of the thoughts. You're not doing the, the questioning, what's my relationship. Exactly. Um, so w- how in this concentration practice would you get to those insights? Or would do they come by themselves? Excellent question. Thank you for asking this. So what's the relationship between concentration and insights? So the um, insights, learning new things about ourselves, learning about the nature of suffering, our relationship to suffering, all that good stuff happens with mindfulness. It doesn't happen with concentration. So this is how concentration supports mindfulness. And this is why um, a lot of teachers will say, everybody agrees you need mindfulness a certain amount in order to have freedom. But what they disagree is the amount of concentration that's needed. So some um, teachers will teach that you must have a tremendous amount of concentration before you begin 
a certain type of mindfulness or insight practice. Because, and then the, the, what you can see, if, if we use this analogy of tripod and telescope, what you can see with a really solid tripod is different than what you can see without one, even though you're still looking through a telescope. So some people will say you have to do a lot of concentration practice, get it really still, and then do mindfulness. Here at IMC, we kind of have the opposite idea that you can do mindfulness and do a lot of mindfulness. And the more mindfulness you do, it's just natural. Your body starts to settle down. Your mind starts to settle down. Without specifically trying to get concentrated, you will get concentrated if you do a lot of mindfulness practice, as well as insights will arise. My experience, and I know I've talked to others, is that often if you're doing meditation practice, insights sometimes arise like at the end of the meditation session. Like when there's a certain, like, just like a moment of relaxing, like, oh, okay, I'm done meditating. There's like a certain relaxation and something new arises in that. So sometimes when the bell rings, you get up to sit or get up to change your posture or something like that. So it's... um, Meditating both concentration and mindfulness kind of help create uh, conditions for insights that can help our lives and lead us to awakening. Great, Kim has a comment. I hope this will be helpful. <laughs> um, um, mindfulness and concentration, as we're talking about them now, have been positioned as just two different ways to meditate which may or may not be more or less similar. My experience is that there is a difference. One of the differences is that there can be some intention behind mindfulness. It's something that we have a little bit of control over, if we can say that. And whereas concentration at this level that's indicated here is not really willed, um, you know, after even the first jhana, there's no thought, right? So there's um, there's a difference in how they unfold. And I guess I would just point that out, is that the kind of um, idea that this is just something that we can select, like the red pen or the blue pen or the green pen, um, hasn't been my experience. Thank you very much, Kim. So... Concentration is very concentration practice is very much about creating the conditions for concentration. And so mindfulness is part of that. But also all these other things that we had here, virtue, restraining the senses, being mindful, these other things. It's really about creating the conditions. And then the mind knows how to get concentrated, I guess, or experience concentration. I don't know. Would you, would you agree with that, Kim? Yeah, I would. Well, I would say that knowing about it as we're doing now is important and useful, in order that when the mind is has those conditions there, it can find its way with some. You know, it takes some practice still, but it's definitely not the same idea as choosing, willing. It's more like steering. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. I hope that didn't con- confound things, but. I just think there's a difference in character between mindfulness and concentration. Yes, yes, yes. 
Yeah, the concentration, as Kim said, is not about uh, just deciding, okay, I'm going to get into the third jhana now and, and make it happen, right? It's the conditions have to be there. And Okay, so what's this business third jhana and things like that that Kim and I are talking about? Let's look at this table that um, is on the handout. Again, jhana is a, a Pali word that often gets used when talking about this, but I think that it most often is translated as meditative absorption or absorption states. Or I know the teachers here at IMC often will use that expression, meditative absorption, as opposed to jhana. So there are four jhanas in this box, you can see here, and they, each of them are um, described as having factors. So these qualities of the mind or these elements in the mind. And, the f- um, and I'll say this, that not all discourses agree on exactly these factors in this way. And not all concentration... There are some teachers who emphasize jhana and they will like teach specifically like how to get into these jhanas. And they um, will interpret these differently. So I don't want to make it sound like, okay, because it's in a nice, neat, tidy box, that it really is nice, neat, and tidy. But we'll see in the first one is this idea of applied and sustained thought. These are awkward translations of this idea of the mind. Hmm. Wow. Um, Like the applied thought is like when a bee <laughs> lands on a, a flower. I think this is right. I heard this. And it doesn't really find any pollen. So it goes to the next one, goes to the next one, goes next. So, bzz, 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 you know, that kind of, that's applied. And sustained is when the bee lands and there is pollen and it's interacting with the thought. So in this way, this little analogy is a flower is kind of like a thought and the bee is like a mind the mind whether it's just going from thought to thought or whether it's uh, more interacting with it but we don't have to worry too much about the difference between applied and sustained thought because they're here as a pair the second uh, drawn factor is rapture it's a type of uh, a physical sensation very often people experience it differently and there's been writing about this. Um, I, th- I think some people may call it a, a joy, uh, but you know, it's a real sense of rapture. <laughs> That's not very helpful. Sorry. <laughs> and then um, there's also a type of pleasure. And then it says, this pleasure is due to seclusion from the hindrances. So it, there's a real kind of like relief and sense of contentment and good feeling when you don't have doubt or restlessness or aversion or desire or you're not drowsy, right? It's just like you're kind of in an optimal state. It's a very pleasant feeling. So if that's in the um, first genre, I'd like to read a simile. I love these similes because that's often another way to understand them. So this is the classical simile. It's sprinkled throughout a number of times in the Buddhist discourses. Just as a skilled bath person or a bath person's apprentice heaps bath powder in a bowl and sprinkling it gradually with water kneads it until the moisture wets the ball of bath powder soaks it and pervades it inside and out yet the ball itself does not ooze water so 
the, the time of the Buddha, we can, um, this made more sense than now. I think we could think of this as flour, and we're going to make dough, right? So you have flour, you add a little bit of water, and you kind of knead it. And then dough isn't has water throughout all of the flour, right? It's not like water here and flour there. And there's a little bit of effort required in the kneading, right? There was something that had to happen to transform these two things. So we could say that the unification of the mind, so maybe I should say that's one way that we could describe concentration is the lack of distraction, the lack of... um, Sometimes our minds feel scattered, and concentration is the opposite of that, is you know, feeling kind of unified here in one place. So the unification of the mind is represented by how water is used to bring together the soap or the flour. And applied and sustained thought, the factors, are represented by the effort that the bath attendant or the baker is doing. And so, and then the pleasure, I guess it's maybe taking a bath. <laughs> what we can imagine in um, ancient India, that right, where things aren't paved, right, and they don't have a cement like we do, so b- being dusty was a common experience. So, and this idea that. Um, there's, it's desirable to have um, bath powder into a bath pole and a little bit of effort's required, but once you're there, it's a pleasurable experience taking a bath. I'm not sure I did that justice, but... It's the idea that... Um, maybe I'll highlight this. It's a pleasant experience that there's this rapture and this pleasure here, and there's still some thought and a little bit of effort is required. And then with the second jhana, the second row in the table, we'll see that the applied and sustained thought has dropped away. Rapture is still there. Pleasure is still there. But now the pleasure is due to being still or the concentration. And then there's a one-pointedness and a self-confidence. I'm not myself exactly sure how to define like this self-confidence, but it's more that it's a um, a, f- a more f- a finer experience. It's um, than the where 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 in the first jhana there's some thought, in the second jhana there's a little bit more um, simplicity. It's a little bit more space. Maybe I'll say something like that. Here's a a simile. Just as though there were a lake whose waters welled up from below and it had no inflow from the east, west, north, or south and would not be replenished by showers of rain, then the cool fount of water welling up in the lake would make the cool water drench, steep, fill, and pervade the lake so that there'd be no part of the whole lake unpervaded by cool water. So too a practitioner makes the rapture and pleasure born of concentration drench, steep, fill, and pervade one's body. 
so that there's no part of one's whole body unpervaded by the rapture and pleasure born of concentration. So the absence of rain or the rivers flowing into the lake this kind of symbolizes there's not so much sensory things coming from the outside. It's more a um, coming from the inside. It's more like this um, this pleasure and rapture is an internal experience. And this very much ties into what we talked about earlier for mindfulness to know this worldly or unworldly sensations. These are kind of like the, un, not kind of, they are the unworldly sensations that were being talked about there. And then um, you can see that as for the third jhana, then rapture falls away. And then there's just pleasure and some equanimity. And then in the fourth jhana, even the pleasure falls away. And then there's this, this purity of mindfulness due to equanimity. So as, we, as a person goes through the different jhanas, there's a falling away of more and more elements. You may think that um, rapture is a good thing, but then rapture has a little bit of a jangly exper- uh, quality to it so then pleasure has a little bit more of contentment ease about it and then you discover that oh even pleasure has a little bit of a energetic quality to an equanimity in which there's a real kind of like stillness is even though more satisfying than pleasure which is more satisfying than rapture which is more satisfying than thinking and the mind often can just naturally go through these. For some people, for some people they have this uh, um, capability, just the way their minds work, and for some people it's not so easily done. So then I've talking about four jhanas that are in this box here and the jhana factors, what's present when you're in these different jhanas. And often um, here in the contemporary West, we talk about eight jhanas. There's four more after these four. Back in the time of the Buddha, they didn't clump them together and call them all jhanas. They had the four jhanas and what we call the four bases, or the four spheres. But now we kind of put them all together. So that's what I have um, down here, number five, six, seven, eight, are the formless or non-sensory jhanas. So... In the first four jhanas, they're about these jhana factors, how they're falling away until you're just into equanimity. And then in the formless jhanas, or the non-sensory ones, it's less about factors falling away and more about what is conscious, what, what, is, um, what the practitioner is aware of. So in the fifth one, you're aware of consciousness and the infinite, the, the lack of boundaries of it. And then if you go be, kind of like beyond consciousness is just space. So there's an awareness of just space. And then if you go beyond space, there's no things no thingness. And then if you go on beyond that, there's perception, but nothing that's being perceived. So 
that's neither perception nor non-perception. It's not that there's still the capability to perceive, there's, but nothing that is being perceived. So these last four, these formless jhanas, unlike the first four, they're not as common. They don't have similes associated with them. There are really brief descriptions. It's a little bit less clear what role they have in liberation or um, awakening. Um, they're taught less often, I would say. Um, yes, Kim. Uh, this is just for, I know we're not going into these in detail, but just for clarification, uh, number five is infinite space and number six is infinite consciousness. Just did, as an FYI. Did yeah. I get these wrong? Yeah. <laughs> My apologies. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, I, is it right? Did I have these wrong? I think Okay, Kim wouldn't say it if it weren't true, right? So, space. Okay, so I wrote this opposite. So my apologies. <laughs> and then I described them. Oh, right, right. There's, okay. So, yes. And there's, I can understand. Yes. Going back to the four that are in this chart, I'm not sure I understand why things are positioned where they are here. Oh, in the box? Yes. So does that mean like as you go from the first jhana to the second one, then the thought kind of falls away and in addition to rapture and pleasure you get to a one-pointedness of mind and self-confidence but then when you go to the third you one-pointedness becomes equanimity and then self-confidence doesn't factor in anymore is that how we're reading this exactly Exactly. And I don't know if one point is becomes equanimity exactly, but they're similar, one point is an equanimity. So they're kind of lined up there. So that's exactly the point. It was to show that some things are falling away and other things are arising. Thank you. So, Diana, to read this, does that mean this level of jhanas happened consecutively? It, it won't jump around. What I mean is somebody have to experience the first, then second, then keep on practicing, then third, fourth. So I think classically, if, if you were to be taught this, you would be taught uh, first jhana, then gain mastery of it. And what mastery means is to be able to go into that jhana at will, stay for however long you want, come out whenever you want, and do that you know so many times for like a hundred times or something, and then do the second, do the third, then the fourth. So gain mastery. And then teachers may say, okay, go into the first, skip over the second, and go into the third, stay there for a while, and stay in the fourth, or something like this. But if you, unless you are intentionally doing this, 
Um, I think the, the way they naturally would unfold is first would naturally unfold into the second, would naturally unfold into the third, naturally unfold into the fourth. Yes, sequential. I see. So, uh, but as far as the factors, so within that first, those three factors, it will probably pop up randomly when you do it, and um, could it be any of these factors happen first, then there other factor just popping oh. up. So the order of the factors. Yeah. Yeah, that's very interesting uh, question. Um, and you said randomly, so I'll say there's nothing random here in the sense that we are creating the conditions for these to arise. And exactly what those conditions are, well, if we all knew that exactly, we would all be concentrated. But it's still, um, they arise when the conditions are in place um, I don't know the answer to this. Are they in the same order? Do they go like in the order they're written down here? I'll say, I think the way that they're here in the table is how they are described in the text in this order, but I don't know if that means that's the order they arise, but I think that's an interesting question. Okay. Are there any any more questions? Kind of this idea. Maybe I'll, I'll take this point to say something that I reiterated again. That often uh, my experience is like here at IMC or on retreat or something. That instructions um, are maybe given in a general way and may not include anything about jhanas. But then when you're um, speaking one-on-one with a teacher, that may be something in which you could talk about or explain or he or she would talk about with you. I think that, um, and I appreciate this very much, that we kind of want to honor everybody's experience. And there's so many different ways of being in the world and experiencing our minds that they aren't always talking about concentration because this isn't something that's readily available for everybody. And so um, it's not something that's talked about always in the hall, in the meditation hall or as instruction. It's not necessarily required. But if you do read the suttas, the discourses, you will stumble upon this quite a few times. It is definitely in there in the Buddhist discourses. Okay, so I'm thinking it's time for lunch. It's uh, 12.40. So if we can, can we um, take an hour for lunch? So be back at 1.40. I'll stay here. If somebody has questions, you're welcome to come up and um, ask me some questions. And um, for those of you who know, we'll set up some tables here so we can eat here or... um, but some of you may choose to go out and get some lunch as well. So I'll see you back here at 1.40, and we'll talk about metta or loving kindness. So, thank you. Yeah.